Oh, he's done it again. But is the tide turning? Let's get started. Another race for the world's greatest driver, Juan Manuel Fangio. Former world champion Jim Clark leapt into the lead. That's Clark's Lotus going like a bomb. And James Hunt is the world champion by just one single point. By being a racing driver, you are under risk all the time. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver. And that is Michael Schumacher ahead, the world champion. To become a four-time world champion, Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. That's for all the kids out there who dream the impossible. Max Verstappen is champion of the world. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of F1 in Review 2023. I'm Tom Claiborne and as ever I'm joined by Angus Gallagher and Tristan Fancourt. Today we look back at the Italian Grand Prix where Max Verstappen recorded his 12th win of the season, this being his 10th in a row, meaning now he surpassed Vettel's 2013 record for the most consecutive wins. Now another accolade to his name, does this do anything, in your view at least, for his all-time ranking or rating as a driver at all? Well, you brought that up at uh, a previous podcast, didn't you? But I'm trying to think which one. Bear in mind, this is 27, so maybe uh, 20 or, or 19. And mm. I think we all sort of agreed, didn't we, that he, he is certainly now up there amongst some of the all-time greats. Now, where you want to have the cutoff, I think, will de- decide wh- whether or not you count as being all-time greats. Because there have been so many great that's the thing about all time it encompasses all the time but um i certainly think breaking that streak adds another feather into his cap in terms of of trying to rank him amongst um every other fantastic racing driver that we've seen like you know likes of senna likes of clark uh, hamilton vettel and i mean if you if you're inclined alonso these great drivers and i think there is more to a great racing driver than just number of world championships because unfortunately if you look at you know the historic greats such as people like Ayrton Senna or you know Jim Clark for example then they were taken from the sport before their time so it's it's very hard to necessarily match that but what we can certainly say is i would say that well, i think max will be looked back upon from history as being a completely dominant force. And I think that's what marks a great racing driver, a little mark in history. I think there are lots of drivers that we perhaps will forget going forward. And when you look back at Hart- you know, previous races, you, you go, oh, I, I forgot that Brendan Hartley was in Formula One. Well, <laughs> no one's gonna, no one's <laughs> going to, you know, forget the Max Verstappen dominant years. And so, I, all I can say, really, is there is no doubt now in my mind that we will remember Max, and Max will have made his mark on the sport, and that puts him in a very unique place. I guess now the question is, how many world championships is the great Max Verstappen, racing driver extraordinaire, 10 wins in a row, going to get to his name? Because Max said this weekend that he's not in it. 
for you know, seven world championships in a row or to be racing to these 40. So there is a possibility, Tom, that the great Max Verstappen, you know, perhaps one of the greatest of all time, may walk away from the sport before he could potentially reach his, should we say, maximum potential. Really? It, it just might go, <laughs> well, that's it. Oh, brilliant. Off I go now. Bye. Yeah, he's record breaker. He is, obviously. But I'd say that it's... I maintain based on last week that this record, I don't care what car you're driving, whether you're driving the most dominant car in Formula 1 history or you're driving an inferior car. To win 10 races in a row is extraordinary. And at the end of the day, I think I'm right in saying that Michael Schumacher never won nine races in a row, let alone 10. Only Sebastian Vettel won nine races in a row. Alberto Ascari won nine Grand Prix in a row in the 1950s, but he di- he didn't turn up for the Indianapolis 500 because it was in America and he couldn't get there. So that's a bit of a technicality with that one. So to win 10 has never been done. And he's, yeah, he's absolutely, he's just dominating. Again, he's um, he's probably dominating the sport. Like, I haven't seen someone dominate the sport ever, to be honest with you. It's it's quite incredible how Verstappen is so relentless and manages to, to keep on doing it. He had a bit of a fight on his hands this weekend, didn't he? He had some actual competition for a little bit. Uh, until lap 15 when he overtook the Ferrari. But he had a had a stern test from the Ferraris, definitely. But he still, he just he drove the race so well. It's so, it's so easy in that situation to fluff the start, be behind both Ferraris, and all of a sudden they're in the driving seat when it comes to strategy, which actually, to think about it, is probably not a good thing, knowing Ferrari's reputation with that. But nonetheless, he again was just absolutely flawless and his drive was was brilliant you can't criticize him too much for missing out on on pole position by 13 thousandths of a second that's like the equivalent of like a meter on track or something like that so you can't can't knock him for that yeah he's just is spectacularly good will he be around for his absolute peak some might you might argue this is his absolute peak right now we forget he's in his ninth season of formula 1 and he could, and I think he's more likely to be a driver who will retire early but peak earlier. I can't see him being like Alonso and going on till he's 40. I think he's made that pretty clear himself. But even if he does, I'm trying to think, Hamilton's done, I think, 17 seasons of F1. If Verstappen was to do 17 seasons of Formula 1, he'd be, what, 34, 35 by the time he comes to the end of his uh, career. So, you know, that might be his this might be his peak right now. He might be seeing his peak. If we're not seeing his peak, that's also a terrifying thought because how good could he become from now? But at the end of the day, all that I can really contribute to this is that once again, he's just driven him, driven the wheels off that thing. He's a absolute credit to, he's a credit to sports people at the top of their game and just getting everything right and being super driven and accomplishing basically any goal that's like in front of them. It's interesting, isn't it, this question about how we hold records like this? Because, yes, they're not world championships, but they're a period of dominance, if you will. And I don't subscribe, as I'm sure you two don't as well, that the reason he's doing so well or the reason that Lewis Hamilton did so well in years gone by was the car and that he had a better car than everyone else and that he couldn't help but win as such was the technology at his disposal. But it seems that not everybody holds this accolade, this record, if you will, in such high uh, regard 
regard as we do because Mercedes Toto Wolff said that the record is completely irrelevant saying it Ooh. was completely irrelevant if Mercedes were to go and get it anyone were to get it which I don't want to say it's a bit of sour grapes, a bit of bitterness, something like that, because Hamilton, we know, was nowhere near this record. Not to go and sort of uh, fan the flames that is the battle between Lewis Hamilton and the uh, fan group of Verstappen and vice versa. But I think that's remarkably harsh because we've seen many good racing driver, as we've mentioned there early, fall victim of bad luck technical issues, strategy and the rest, which means they can't be held in such high regard as the world champions because they haven't won as many. Kimi Raikkonen, for one, being an example in my mind, Alonso another. But um, your thoughts on those comments by Mr. Wolf? Is he, um, yeah, showing a bit of side, maybe? Doesn't It reminds me a bit of the other comments that came out the week, at the weekend, which um, I'm going to say that I don't like the, the, the current media trend of... Chinese whisperings between drivers and what I mean by that is Lewis Hamilton was was being interviewed and there was a conversation about um, teammates and Lewis said oh well um, you know Max just hasn't ever had a teammate that's been as fast as him and of course then the the, you know, the media person will go over to Max and they go ah Max Lewis Hamilton just said that you've never had a had a teammate that's as fast as you what do you think of that? Hmm. And of course, then you get this aggravation. So yeah, I think we need to try and avoid fanning the flames of, of what can be media sensationalism a little bit. But it does kind of roll into that comment a little bit, Tom. And uh, and that's where I was going with that, really, because I, I kind of agree with Hamilton's comments a little bit in that I think if if yeah if max had uh, another sort of max against him i think it would be slightly harder for him to achieve 10 in a row and certainly perez has never been up that level i wonder if you look back at let's say the the complete domination between hamilton and rosberg whether or not um you know hamilton would have been able to get to 10 in a row then my gut feeling is is if things were equal with second drivers probably i would i would agree with hamilton a little bit that mercedes has sort of picked stronger second drivers than red bull has which may be a credit to the mercedes pool of drivers they can pick but also maybe a credit to red bull from you know completely throwing everything into one driver knowing that they are brilliant so i think it's one of those interesting awards where it kind of not only tells you something about the driver who's achieved it, but I think maybe it does also tell you about the calibre of the other driver. And it, there are now questions, you know, and we're talking about it. What, why didn't Hamilton ever get sort of nine in a row, ten in a row? What, what were the reasons behind that? So, yeah, it is, it is an interesting one, isn't it? But I would say that Toto's just been grumpy because he's got to have an operation on his arm again because he broke his arm um, a while back in a cycling accident, and he's been in a bad mood ever since. So, you know, it was a hard weekend for the Mercedes. I do think that to some extent we we kind of ramp these questions up to get a get a, a dangerous answer, an answer that will spark conversation. That's why Helmut Marko is such a uh, an interesting media personality uh, whenever Red Bull let him out of his corner to, to face the media again. And so I do think that part of part of it may just be Grumpy Toto being, you know, sort of having a leading question. And part of it may also be tied to the fact that Red Bull's just not got as dominant second driver as perhaps 
Mercedes has had in fact that we've had Rosberg and we've had Bottas who were two exceptionally fast drivers in their day Hamilton admits that a lot do you think Bottas was better than Perez because I personally think they're quite equal I think Bottas is better than Perez and I think the reason for that is if you just look at Bottas's consistency I think it's higher than Perez. Bottas was given a lot of bad luck, let's face it. Do you remember? There's that great phrase. I think Martin Brundle says a lot. If you don't have bad luck, you'd have no luck at all. Bottas was, is an exceptionally fast driver and one of the best drivers we've seen for a long time. Um, and I would say better than Perez. Mm. Yeah, I'd be in agreement with that. I'd say that a big factor of why Hamilton ne- never necessarily won 10 in a row was because He'd win maybe 7 out of 10, but on the other 3 out of 10, Bottas would be there to, to pick up the pieces. You think of how many close qualifyings there were over the years, not just between Hamilton and Bottas, but also between Hamilton and Rosberg. You'd have only about a tenth of a second between them either way, and it wouldn't be a surprise sometimes to see Bottas take pole position because he was a very accomplished driver with lots of pace who I think his downfall was that he wasn't quite able to get that overall consistent package I mean he had he has 20 pole positions in Formula 1 so to be honest with you I think that shows how he had quite a fair amount of raw speed and Perez just doesn't necessarily have that Perez's consistency that's what I think of I think of Sergio Perez he's got a lot of consistency but he's only got three pole positions and considering he's been in one of the most dominant cars of all time in recent in recent times I think that that speaks volumes but at the same time, Verstappen is in a position in that team where he has the facilities and the ability to be able to dominate that team and be able to dominate the, the running of that team and how the car is aligned. So I think whilst Perez is at a disadvantage with that, I'd say that Bottas would still be the better driver. In terms of Toto Wolff's comments, I'm saying sour grapes personally, but also... I'd be pretty annoyed if I was him right now and I'd seen my, if I was a very competitive person like him and I'd seen my Formula 1 team win eight, was it eight? Yeah, eight Constructors' Championships in a row and now they are in second but they don't even they don't even have half of the points of Red Bull despite being in second place in the Constructors' Championships. So it's sour grapes for sure but I think we can, his bitterness can be justified based on the fact he's a very competitive person, clearly, and have you seen Mercedes this year or the last two years? Why do you think Perez is um, stronger, Tom? I'd be interested to hear why you think Bottas perhaps was was a diminished driver compared to to Perez, and what you've seen in Perez recently that that makes you think, wow, that's you know, that is a the quality number two. Because I, I would say that on the surface, on the stats, I think Bottas still wins outright. Yeah, I'd say they're pretty equal drivers. There's probably little in it between them, be that Bottas slightly better than Perez or vice versa. But the point I was trying to make is that with Bottas, you did have a teammate there, which Lewis Hamilton could beat consistently and was a number two driver, a wingman, someone who wouldn't really challenge for the driver's championship as we're seeing Perez being unable to do as well. And looking at Bottas at the moment, I think we're all expecting him to do a lot more than he currently has been doing with Alfa Romeo. Granted, he's had a better time with Williams when he's there previously, but I think that they're quite comparable drivers insofar as they're both underdogs. They both had to scrap really for points at the, the top table if you will and that um, 
Yeah, I, I think that while Perez is more of a Apache driver with Red Bull and Bottas was more consistent when it came to qualifying, I think that Perez is in you know certain sectors in certain races more towards the start of the season been able to go and really take the fight more to max than Bottas did in the last few years but all subjective I, I grant you I'd like to come back to this at the end of the season I think because it'd be interesting to see uh from a holistic perspective how well Perez has done and and perhaps that's something we can sort of discuss actually is is how effective have, have the number two drivers been um in in some of the teams you know for example Red Bull because if it's been the non-stop max show it'll be quite damning i think for perez because mercedes attribute so much of their world constructor success to bottas so it will be interesting to see whether or not we can attribute the same success to perez hmm yeah most definitely and i think that perez has come in for some criticism more recently when it's come to his qualifying record but again we saw him finishing p2 once again beating the ferraris fast cars at the home circuit really and while he's been unable to convert let's say decent qualifyings into victory he's been a vast improvement on the likes of albon gasly and those who have come before which i personally don't think he's given enough credit for i think people are more likely to go and say perez has done really poorly or not performed or look at the gulf between him and Max before they're prepared to go oh he's actually improved significantly compared to his first season which was very topsy-turvy until the last quartile in my view and talking about those fast cars at their home circuit Ferrari now Verstappen had to work for this victory as we say we had Carlos Sainz on pole he kept that until lap 15 and ultimately fell down to P3 and was overtaken by the aforementioned Perez there on lap 46. Now for me, despite kept, despite coming third, uh, for signs that is, I'd probably class this as one of his better races, one of his best races in fact really, when it comes to his Formula 1 career because the moves he had to make, the decisions he had to make, the ability to get the best out of that car really, to put himself on that podium after being chased by two Red Bulls and having to fight his own teammate was... In my view, nothing short of remarkable. But uh, what do you think? Yeah, sterling drive from science. I thought that his determination to try and first stay in the lead and then also to stay on the podium towards the end was fantastic. And I think that it's been a weird year for Ferrari because once again you've had... A, a car that started okay but then sort of has been okay the whole year you've had drivers the drivers have not had too much to shout about in terms of positive feedback and positive results you've got this new era under Fred Vasseur this new transition which is going on which you know is underway but are we seeing too much fruitful change at the moment not necessarily but there are some green shoots I think that poll on Saturday was one of the feel-good stories of the season in terms of having the Tifosi go up in arms at a Ferrari driver be on pole at the the home race. It really was quite spectacular to see the crowd react in that way. And also, our traditional mention of probably the best podium of the whole season, you know, that Monza podium overlooking the track with the fans down below on the track. Some of them booing Max Verstappen, which sadly I think inevitable in this day and age it's not a nice a nice sight to to see or sound to hear but yeah the vast majority of Ferrari fans were very welcoming and 
they had a fantastic moment to cheer in Sainz getting that pole position. I think, it, well, yeah, like you said, one of his better drives from this year. And he really put up a fantastic fight, even against Perez in what was probably a, in it, what in the end was a losing cause because he couldn't really hold on to second. He put up a, an excellent fight and managed to bag that podium at the end. A good haul for Ferrari. Takes them above Aston Martin as well into third place in the constructors. So a nice little uh, feather in the cap from the weekend. Can't really say much else about it other than the fact that, yeah, Science had a fantastic weekend. And I think that they'll want to see more of these weekends from him in the rest of the year because there's been it's been kind of too far few and few and far between for Ferrari this year I think science was absolutely exhausted at the end of that race all he did was defend the whole race a whole race of staunch defense and that that must have been very very difficult because let's face it I don't think Max nor Perez, and certainly not Leclerc made uh, his life easy. Uh, contrary to what Nico Rosberg says, who says um, that, that Leclerc's being too nice to, to science, but then, um, hey, that's just Nico Rosberg with his hot takes. But hmm. uh, it's, it is funny, isn't it, um, how Ferrari really set themselves up well for success. Um, and I think they got out from the race everything that they were probably going to and i think yeah. that's i think that's the harsh reality of where ferrari are this weekend and that's hard for ferrari fans to hear i think trust me i uh, you know we we know this it is hard to follow a team and accept that they are only worthy probably for third and fourth but the car just was eating its tires it was they were degrading so fast and when Max was behind Science and Science was, you know, was pushing as hard as he could, Rebel was getting on the radio saying, "Oh, don't worry, Max, you can see that his tires are dying." And Max was, "Oh yeah, I see, yeah, they're dying. Look, at those, oh, those are bad, aren't they? <laughs> God, I'd hate to be driving on those right now." And that really, it really shows you where Max's headspace is, and you know where perhaps Science's was, because Max was relaxed, knowing that his he was just going to get him eventually because his tires were going to run out, whereas Science was having to go further and further and further on these tyres and eventually you've got to give up. Something's got to give and science made them, you know, lock up into into turn one and that was it. Max got passed and then that sort of repeated for a while. Um I, I think I think we saw flutterings of success from Ferrari in, in an incredible pole position lap. Fantastic. Um did you enjoy the interview after um the qualifying and the definitely not biased uh, interviewer who I who was so funny. If you haven't seen that interview, it's go out. It's really funny because he's he's basically like, "Oh Max, you didn't you didn't get pole. How will you deal with this crushing loss?" You know, sort of thing. <laughs> this abs- absolute failure here. Will you cry? I think I see tears. <laughs> that sort of thing. I was like, "My God, lay lay down a bit. Um, calm down. Max is gonna get him tomorrow, and he did." Um, so yeah, I think, but we can, we can come out of this knowing that Ferrari certainly has taken a little step forward, didn't quite get what they wanted, but I think what we saw from science was an incredible drive, an incredible drive. Um, but I think what Ferrari need to deliver is a little bit more driver management because 
do you think it was right for Fred Fraser to let them fight and to give them weird messages such as no risk, we race to the end? Hmm. No would be the answer to that, but it's nothing new in my view. I mean, look back at Silverstone, for example, where you had Ferrari having a gift route of victory for one of their drivers. You'd have thought signs really with how well he was doing last season. But once again, you had that vague ambiguity about how they were meant to do things and when to give positions to another and when to attack and when to leave, etc., etc. It's unfortunately the same old problems despite this Fred Vasseur revolution slash reform that's going on at the moment. And I go further as well. I think really that once Verstappen overtook Sainz, Ferrari typically froze again because you had Sainz in P2, Leclerc in P3. You thought to yourself, well, Sainz's tyres are done. We we hear they're done. We can see they're done because he's locked up um, just before he was overtaken. So why not go and pit him earlier than the five blocks later than they did? Leclerc then going into P2. You've not really lost too much. But again, no action was action in many ways. And I think that if they'd have been a bit more cute and savvy... They could have had a better chance at P2. Not to say they would have got that, but I think once again we're seeing the same old problems after you know a good qualifying and a fast car really at a speed circuit. Interesting from Fred Vasseur, like you say, uh, no risk. We race to the end. Um, what? Excuse me. It's like being on a motorway and saying, "Slow down now, go for the gap," um, or "Slow down, go in the fast lane." It's kind of doesn't really make sense but to be honest i'm gonna look at this from the i'm gonna look at this from the romantic point of view i think it was a lovely way to get the crowd involved and get get the spectators on side you know they had a fight and produced some great entertainment on that last lap ignore the fact that both drivers were locking up going into turn one which isn't always ideal it was great entertainment and you had some fantastic footage uh to show for the archives and you had what was what concluded a, a decent race with some great action right at the end so I'm in favour personally of course if it's your favourite team which is doing it you're probably not in favour but you know it was Ferrari and they're not my favourite team so I was uh, fully behind it I, I think it was just symptomatic of some strategy decisions that were a bit incorrect like for example what did you think of of Ferrari's decision not to pit Sainz once his tyres were falling off and going an extra two laps giving Max another four seconds because surely it was the the obvious incoming uh, undercut and they just ignored it I mean it's Ferrari isn't it with their strategy you can't really can't really trust them too much but also I think I alluded to it earlier in terms of the way that Ferrari was going to win this race was going to be from both of them having a good start. So Science obviously did his job. He cut across into turn one, stopped Verstappen from from moving across into the lead. But you needed Leclerc as well to get that good start because then the amount of difference it makes. I joke that they would have messed it up anyway, but the amount of difference it makes when you've got one of your drivers in first, another in second, and you're trying to go up against a rival because then you just have that flexibility to be able to to outfox that driver especially if they're if they're faster i mean you had occasions over the last few years where i remember when you had um i think maybe in the early stages of 2021 you'd have bottas would be a bit further back you have hamilton versus verstappen and perez now 
there'd be times where the Red Bull realistically needed both Red Bulls, needed both their cars to be in front of Hamilton to be able to force anything strategy-wise because Hamilton would end up being faster. And you needed that with with Ferrari. So I'm actually, I'm becoming, I'm sounding like Ferrari's biggest fan now because I was saying, yeah, they're great to race and oh, spectacular weekend. We love the Tifosi. But I'm going to say, yeah, you know what? Don't mind them doing what they did because realistically they're up against the Formula One version of the Terminator in Mr. Verstappen. So they needed <laughs> they needed a lot oh, yeah. on their side to be able to overcome him. And the fact they couldn't quite get both cars in front to give them more favourable strategy, you know what, it's it's unfortunate, but I think that it just it's things were against them in terms of getting the victory. I think it would have taken a I still genuinely think it does take a retirement for Verstappen to lose a race at this point. Like he's on that much of a crest of a wave. And I think as well, despite all these very valid points, there's a lot of green shoots really here for Ferrari because we're once again seeing them push Red Bull a, a power circuit. So I'm thinking Brazil, Japan, Austin, circuits which have many straights and uh, not too many corners. This is a good chance for them to go and cash in. But it will be interesting to hear your views on where you think Ferrari can finish in terms of the constructors because they're P3 at the moment but only 45 points behind Mercedes in P2, and you go, well, that is purely insurmountable, surely. But if you look at the last few races from, let's say, Austria through to uh, Italy, for example, you've got Mercedes getting one podium, a P3. You've got Ferrari getting a P2, and then a P3 in uh, Belgium, and then obviously the P3 here in Italy, Monza. Do you think they can do it? Can they get P2? What would P2 mean to them, do you think? P2? for Ferrari this year would represent, I think, a clawback from last year. Because let's not forget that they, I think, had the first uh, chance of and uh, first bite out of the apple of the World Constructors' Championship last year. And it's been a bit of a fall since then, especially with Aston Martin setting a new pace and Mercedes rising up. I think for Ferrari, it would be a saving grace. It would save their face a little bit. But I just don't I don't necessarily think they're going to get there, Tom. What mm, they had to true. do this weekend was rather drastic. They 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 went for Williams, if you'd like. They they cut all of their drag out. And even then, even then, they were starting to get under threat by Mercedes. So with the rest of the calendar looking like it's looking, and I don't necessarily think that Ferrari are going to be able to catch up that. So maybe it's going to... The question is, what does what does P3 represent to Ferrari? And, and it can, you know, sh- should they be content with that? But if they can do it, I think it will, it will return them back to where they were last year. And certainly that will allow Ferrari to put their head a little bit higher because let's not forget, this isn't a small team. This isn't a bumbling team that has no history. They are the most successful Formula One team ever long one well, you know longest ever great names and so all of those resources all those facilities and to still only get p2 p3 you gotta wonder where it's all going right it would i think clawback is the right word in terms of how it would reflect their season it's not where they want to be i mean you never want to be 355 points off the top of the championship in the constructors, not ideal. I think that 
third is probably more realistic. I don't see them closing the gap to Mercedes. I see Mercedes having enough to push through and get over the line and be able to maintain that second place. You think that beating Aston Martin would have to be the bare minimum, to be honest, based on, mm, like you yeah. say, the result, the resources available. So you'd have to think that would be the bare minimum. They might be able to get a couple of podiums, maybe. I mean, they've got, what, four podiums so far this season. Three pole positions, if you include the one that was granted to Leclerc in Belgium due to grid drops for Verstappen. So, yeah, third, I'd say bare minimum for them, to be honest with you. Can't see them getting second. And then, I guess, as always, it's get that and then reset, move on for next year. You know, all the same things again before they get trounced by Red Bull, inevitably, once again. And what about you, Tom, though? Well, what do you think this means for Ferrari? Um, I mean, unfortunately, none of us are staunch Ferrari fans. Instead, we decide to um, to, to support other painful teams instead. Tom, mm. you are a Haas fan, myself, McLaren, yeah, and boy. Angus, at the moment, a Mercedes fan, which must be weird, uh, <laughs> feeling like this. But what do you think it, it means um, to the Tafosi? Um, if if it got if it got to P two, because is is it enough for the, the you know the passioned Italians? I think P two would be like winning the constructors. Quite frankly, looking at how poor they have been in some races this season and how sort of cut adrift they have been from both Mercedes and Red Bull. I think to answer my own question, they've given themselves a fighting chance. Forty five points isn't insurmountable. Uh, at all of course two race wins give or take um, so not saying they're going to win races but we, when you look at their more recent form they're more likely to do so than Mercedes you could argue now the question is what does it mean for them moving forwards in terms of the circuits coming up I've mentioned the good ones Brazil Japan etc but Singapore I'm not too convinced they're going to do so well there look at the P7 and P8 they got in Hungary for example uh, P9 and 10 in Silverstone for example not too great at those tr- street circuits where there's more cur- corners than a stretch shall we say so I think if they were to do this it would go down to the last race Abu Dhabi once again not exactly the sort of showstopper we were hoping for but maybe something to take to the final race if so but I mean, seriously, if they're not beating Aston Martin to P3, then serious questions have got to be asked of the team, the strategy, the drivers as well, really, because you've got Sainz and Leclerc, who are very good drivers, in a good car, fair to say. Not an amazing car, but as we see, one that can get on the podium on its own merit, one that has the straight line speed, the qualifying pace to get P1 next day as well. And to lose to a team without being harsh that only has one fully-fledged, decent driver would be a shame, to say the very least. But um, P2, would that be enough for the Tafosi? Well, I think that's what they've had to get used to, really, looking backwards. I mean, P2, they got that last year in the Constructors and really threw away uh, the open goal that was winning it uh, on merit, really, when it came to the car they had. But beyond that, you have to go all the way back to 2007, 2008, to the last time they were really competitive. Because there's been flashes, hasn't there, with Vettel, for example, versus Mercedes, but aside from that, there's no not really been a, a serious, fully-fledged attack on P1 of either the Drivers' or Constructors' Championship. So P2 would be like, well, the biggest comeback since Istanbul, if he's a, a footballing analogy. Hmm. Uh, yes, I uh, completely understand that uh, footballing analogy. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> is the assumption then that Aston Martin is going to, to stay in fourth with um, 217 points as they do now, with Ferrari's 228? It's not like 
Aston Martin aren't close behind. So is your assumption then that Ferrari is going to be at least third? Yes, because my assumption is that both their drivers will finish in the top 10 and therefore score points. Meanwhile, with Aston Martin, one driver, not mentioning names, will do that. And the other one is unlikely <laughs> to do that on a consistent basis. Yeah, not mentioning yep. no strolls. Um, <laughs> okay, fair enough. I, I'll I, uh, just to, to be slightly counter, I think I don't necessarily agree. I think um, I think Ferrari are not going to be as far away from Aston Martin as you might you might think. There, um, I, I have a funny feeling that in this latter half, given what we saw in the not in not the previous race, but in, in Zandvoort, the pace of that Aston Martin, I I I don't know. I I think the Ferrari might still be challenged from Aston Martin. Um, perhaps more than a Ferrari is possible to, to challenge Mercedes. It begs the question, doesn't it, after their great P2 in Zandvoort, where they were really at Monza, because the circuits aren't too dissimilar, which makes me puzzled, if you will. Can we replace the, the phrase uh, great performance by Aston Martin to just great performance by Alonso? Because realistically, or the, the pace, the pace yeah. shown by Alonso, not by Aston Martin, because realistically that's what that was in Zandvoort I think you saw again this weekend we had one of the I mean to be fair I'm actually going to I'm going to have a rarity here I'm going to be nice to Lance Stroll because this weekend he gave up the car in first practice for Felipe Drogovic who's the Aston Martin reserve driver and then in free practice two his car broke down on the first lap which he drove so therefore he had zero laps practice hence probably the explanation for him finishing last in qualifying so i'll let him off this one even though he is he is part of a one-man team still i think tennis is is a good option for him possibly <laughs> i was trying to be nice to him and I was, i'm so sorry lance <laughs> <laughs> he's never gonna be on the podcast now um i don't know where they were this weekend actually so i i do agree it, it probably is the same factors that allowed Williams to be so fast and perhaps even Ferrari to be so fast in that Monza is okay Netherlands is fast Monza is a drag race it's basically two drag strips with some you know very very wide corners I mean they call it parabolica um you know attaching them together so I think you have to have a very specific setup for Monza and that setup is no drag no drag whatsoever and so I think perhaps by the reason Aston Martin was fast in the Netherlands is because it's fast, but it's very flowing. There are lots of, there are corners, yeah. there are these sort of medium sections. It's part of the reason um, why the, the, the upgrades that Aston Martin brought to the track worked, because they brought in the aerodynamic efficiency parts. As soon as you strip all that off and it's basically a straight line speed, you have people like you know, Alex Albon and the Williams starting to <laughs> starting to catch up with a Red Bull every so often. And then you get other drivers falling back, so and other teams falling back. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not Netherlands is the standout for Aston Martin. But as we go to Singapore, as we go to the tight, twisty tracks where the aerodynamic efficiency of your car plays such an all-important point, I think there we may see Ferrari lose out a little bit. And I think Aston Martin will be back up there. And so maybe that'll be a good litmus test in two weeks' time to see whether or not what we're saying now is accurate or if it's just a whole load of imaginary rubbish. 
And we've mentioned them many a time, but now to sort of focus on them a bit more, talking Mercedes, they finished in P5 and P6 in, the, in a race weekend where both Lewis Hamilton and George Russell had gone into this having signed contract extensions with the team. And a weekend as well where Hamilton was penalised for tangling with Mr Piastri of his old team, McLaren. Your thoughts then on their weekend? Yeah, it was, it was all right, I suppose. I think it was quite a, a fiddly, messy weekend from Hamilton, notwithstanding the, the penalty in the race, which, to be fair, you see, you had a rarity. You had a Formula 1 driver apologising for some contact and admitting his wrong, and, I mean, he had to. He was He was definitely at fault for the collision, but fair play to him for owning up in that respect. It was, yeah, silly little instant, cutting in under braking, and... Yeah, it did cost Piastri some points in the end. Probably only a couple of points, but that is some points that were that were cost. In the end, Hamilton's penalty didn't matter because he came sixth and he f- the penalty kept him in sixth because he finished far enough ahead of the Albon, Norris, Alonso gaggle. So therefore, he managed to, managed to do okay there. In terms of Russell, solid weekend. Fourth in quali, which is a good performance. The top three in quali were kind of in a league of their own, that being the Ferraris and Verstappen. So for Russell to come ahead of Perez, and also probably ahead of Albon, because Albon looked rapid in that Williams all weekend and was looking good for that potential sort of fourth place, best of the rest behind Max and the Ferraris. So, yeah, not a bad weekend from Mercedes. They're far enough ahead in the constructors ahead of Ferrari that they didn't have to worry about their... Points advantage this weekend. Time will tell in terms of how the rest of the season goes. But yeah, I think it's solid overall. But again, for a team that's used to such success, having four podiums this season, the same amount as Ferrari have, three less podiums than Fernando Alonso has got, I think is uh, not the best to come to come out with. So probably fifth and sixth was the best they could they could come up with, but. I guess the big news, as you alluded to there, Tom, would be the contract extensions and how both drivers have signed on until 2025. It will take Hamilton into a, a career which will be in its 19th year and it will make him another 40-year-old F1 driver. We've seen th- it'll be the third third or fourth we've seen in the last decade because obviously Schumacher and Kimi Raikkonen were in their 40s and Alonso is still going at 42. Thoughts on the contracts, guys? I think for me it's a case of there's less options around to replace those two. I mean, there's the constant talk of Esteban Ocon being still somehow connected to Mercedes in one way, so therefore he could be a contender for a contract, but I think it never really has come to fruition. So would you say it's the the best option at the moment in terms of what's available on the market? Well, I, th- I think so. I, I- I was I was pleasantly surprised, really, that they've they've given renewed contracts to both drivers. I mean, I'm, I'm, clearly Hamilton thinks there's unfinished business, and Toto Wolff seems to have got into this state of, uh, I don't know, sol- solemn remorse over 2021 and and how he seems to have taken it really personally that Hamilton didn't get the um, his eighth world championship. Uh, perhaps Toto Wolff, Tom. It's a answer to go all the way back this full circle to the beginning, puts more weight on the uh, breaking of the World Drivers' Championship record than uh, the 
the race wins record. That's a that's a mouthful, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but to be honest, George is getting a lot of flack, and I think that's only because he's now in a top team and no one likes the overdog. <laughs> and yeah, everyone liked George when he was coming up through the ranks, and I think he's getting a lot of flack at the moment for I I well I don't know really being the same driver. I think we've seen all the way through. But to be honest, I think Mercedes are really happy with them both, and. Mm. I, I really enjoyed this this weekend. I thought it was really nice to see Hamilton fighting and with Piastri. Yes, there was that collision. And there has been a lot of aggravation, especially on the social medias, about Hamilton's collision. Um, but Hamilton sort of said it best himself. He said, I made a mistake. I apologised to Piastri. And that's all you really need to know about the driver. That's all you need to know about the incident. Hamilton cocked up. He made a mistake. Yes, there was consequences to Piastri, but that was dealt with on the track and then subsequently apologised for Hamilton off the track. So I think we can all move on and Piastri's moved on as well. So I think I think the rest of us who are, are not driving the cars, not losing out on world um, can, the driver's points can move on too. So, But looking at the Mercedes team, they are strong, they're stable, they've got a great current driver uh, in Hamilton that's been there for a very, very long time. It's got incredible racing prowess and many races under his belt. And then they've got George, their future driver, that who will be driving, I suspect, for Mercedes once Hamilton eventually retires out of the sport with either, you know, eight or nine world championships or just mm. his current incredible seventh. But there is no one at the moment that I would say, yes, they should be in Mercedes as opposed to Hamilton and Russell. They, they're they not doing a bad job, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this was the only option for both the drivers and the team, really, because why on earth would Hamilton go to Red Bull or Ferrari if the option was there? I don't see why he'd do that. Obviously, George Russell has put his load in with Mercedes, and to go and jump ship now at the first time of trouble would be telling of his uh, poor character, which he doesn't seem to have, thankfully. And moreover, as well with the team, why would they go and replace what is one of the best drivers of all time, at least in the modern era, Lewis Hamilton, with somebody else and indeed get rid of the next big thing, somebody they've been nurturing for many a year. It would make no sense at all. I mean, the only person I could think of to perhaps come in would be someone like Lando Norris, but he's tied in with McLaren. There's talk of Red Bull obviously sniffing around him as well, so maybe he's looking elsewhere. All hypothetical, of course, but I'm glad to see that Hamilton's staying on, first of all. Uh, glad to see that these two drivers are you know, continuing to do so well together, play nicely and build... Uh, towards what will hopefully be a better car next season for Mercedes after two years of stagnation, really. And I think that the finish of P5 and 6 really surmises where they are at the moment. Nearly good on a good day, but average on most days, unfortunately. And I think that's why they could be vulnerable to Ferrari uh, moving forwards. But I'm sorry, I can't not talk about that prang between Hamilton and Piastri. The fact he was only given five seconds of physical contact, ending Piastri's hope of points. Meanwhile, I'll take you back to that example again. Sonoda being squeezed off, or rather squeezing off Joe and then getting a five-second penalty for that as well. In my in my eyes, that's absolutely ludicrous that Hamilton wasn't given ten seconds or indeed more because... You know, owing to the car he had and how well he did, he was able to essentially alleviate uh, the small penalty he got. Meanwhile, Piastri, in their hope of points, was was done and dusted. But once again, I'm prone to all these sort of uh, rants, if you will, but am I going a bit too far again? I'd agree. Usually, I think, Tom, we we come to loggerheads about these sort of things. 
But I, I do actually agree in this particular instant. Hamilton moved over, hit Piastri when Piastri was clearly alongside and clearly in his own space and significantly impacted his race and basically gave Piastri a stop-go penalty. Um, five seconds for that? Yeah, not great. But it is a bit interesting, isn't it, how these, these um, penalties scale because there isn't a clear cut off for when it's a five seconds into a 10 seconds i don't think and that's a consistent nature of the sport in fact maybe we can say that the only thing consistent about formula one penalties is their inconsistency hmm. um so yeah I, I agree i think it should have been at least a 10 seconds um it was pretty dangerous actually and nearly took them both out into the wall so i was surprised as well that we saw such uh, a lenient penalty given you know to, to Hamilton given what happened to Piastri as a subs- you know as a as a, a subsequence not got much to add really I mentioned about the the penalty how it was well deserved earlier on so you think it was five should have been five seconds I think so I think that it wasn't hugely reckless I think that it's one of those where back in the day right it would have probably been a drive through penalty wouldn't it because of the the fact that that was the one size fits all penalty for all all instances like that, but I think having the five second penalty now is probably the better step to go with because it's it can be applied more consistently for instances such as that. Um, the argument against it would be that it, it directly impacted Piastri's race and that he went from obtaining some points to being outside the points completely. But I think five seconds is fair personally on this occasion. And on that bombshell, that seems that's all we've got time for in terms of episode 27 of F1 in Review 2023. Thank you very much for listening all the way all the way to the end of this one, be that on your preferred podcast provider or indeed elsewhere. A reminder, as ever, you can go and see short snippets of prior episodes on our Twitter and TikTok, the handle being F1 in Review. And looking forward, we're going to be back uh, next week to discuss more about the Italian Grand Prix. There's no Grand Prix action these uh, coming week or weekend. We've got to wait two weeks for the Singapore Grand Prix. But we'll be back to discuss uh, Alfa Tauri, Williams, Alfa Romeo and how they've done in the Italian Grand Prix. And no doubt a whole lot more in between now and then. So thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next week. <laughs>